Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. From the first minute I sat down with Buddy Parrott, he had me believing that he believed in me. I'm not the fun guy. I'm the guy that in Victory Lane is thinking about how we're going to get better next week. I, if I was scared, I'd have quit. But it was, it's stupid to say, well, that's just how it is. That's a bunch of crap. Go to work and make it better. I was not popular with a lot of people. Yeah, I didn't care. 
before I'd had enough success where I didn't have to care. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, it is a shame we don't have anything to talk about in the intro this week. Nothing going on, nothing out of the oh, ordinary. Nothing, nothing. <laughs> Good night, man. <laughs> Did you wash your hands this morning? <laughs> I got to tell you, last week was probably one of the most bizarre weeks that I have ever experienced short of 9-11. Now, it reminded me very, very much of that whole week after 9-11, the whole month after 9-11 with all the sports cancellations and everything, but... I tell you what, man, this Corona thing is, it's, it's <laughs> depending on who you listen to, <laughs> depending on who you listen to, it's either very, very scary or completely overblown. So. Well, yeah, <laughs> I've heard both sides of that yeah, coin right yeah. there. I've heard both sides of that coin right there. But to be very honest with you, yeah, this is very unusual, very strange time. And common sense prevails here. We have got to adapt. That's all Well, common sense should. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Should prevail. Don't be strong opinion about a hoax or the media. It's the media. I love that the media started uh, this. Oh thing. yeah, I yeah, love yeah, that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. You know, don't be radical. Be sensible. That's yeah. all I can say. Listen, it all boils down. There's a verse in the book of Mark, and it says verbatim, "Don't be afraid, just have faith." And so that's what I'm chalking this whole thing up to. I'm trying not to be afraid of this big, bad, scary virus or whatever, but just have a little faith that things are going to be okay, that things are going to work out. That's the way it should be. And remember this, we've been through wars. We have been through food shortages. Yes. We have been through gasoline shortages. Yes. And we the depression. Through, yeah. You know, yeah. anything you want to mention. Um, we have been through tough times with the flu. Yeah. <laughs> Legionnaire's disease, yeah. all of these yeah. things have been yeah. in our past, and we got through it. Yes, we did. And we will get through this. And listeners, this is our vow to you. Steve and I are going to continue bringing you the very best NASCAR history content that we possibly can, because I believe that this is a time where we need a little diversion. I think you're 100% right. And you right, and I are right. going to provide yeah. it. And we're going to do the best we possibly can. Absolutely. Now, this week we have the second installment of our interview with Jeff Burton. And this week, Jeff goes into his team's pretty infamous disqualification at Richmond in 1994. He talks about how he got hooked up with Roush Racing. He talks about his first win at Texas and some pretty glorious years with Roush Racing in the late 1990s. And then, Steve, I got to tell you, I believe that the strongest part of this interview this week, as strong as everything is, When we asked about safety and the debates that were going on in the years 2000, 2001, I believe Jeff still feels pretty strongly about that. I don't think there's any question about it. And what he said about safety during this particular point in time says a lot about his character. Absolutely. And part of the debate that was going on, a huge part of the controversy that was going on at that time was the fact that NASCAR decided to put restrictor plates on the cars at New Hampshire in an attempt to slow them down because we know that both Adam Petty and Kenny Irwin had been fatally injured at that track earlier in the year 2000. I thought that it would be kind of interesting to go back to the issue of Winston Cup scene that covered that race. And Steve, I got to tell you, man, that was one of the most controversial races that I can ever remember. 
I think the big reason for that overall is what you just said about the restrictor plates. If I'm not mistaken, the teams didn't have a whole lot of time to make the switch to those plates and adjust to them. And obviously, Jack Roush and his guys did, which yes. benefited Jeff Burton tremendously. Yeah. But other guys, as we will learn, didn't like it one bit. Jeff wound up leading all 300 laps of that race at New Hampshire, and that didn't help matters. Uh, not at, at all. all. Yeah. But looking back at Saints' coverage, it was a little bit more exciting than what I remembered because he and Dale Earnhardt got to racing each other uh, a little yes. bit pretty hard. That's true. And, Steve, this issue, 88 pages, and it was slam-packed all the way through. I mean, we could talk for two hours just on this issue. <laughs> I don't doubt it. <laughs> so we are going to take a deep, deep dive into the September 21st, year 2000 issue of Winston Cup Scene. And then, Steve, on Patreon, we have new support from Howie Moulton, a.k.a. Jeff Gluck's hat. <laughs> what? <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> Jeff Gluck's hat. You know, that hat that he wears every yeah. week is kind of yeah. his trademark. That hat has its own parody account. Oh, it does. It does. And Howie Moulton is evidently the person behind that parody account. Well, who is Jeff Gluck's shorts? <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> but we also have new support from Angela E. Morin, and we have PayPal support this week from Scott Perman. And Steve, we go through the perks and incentives every week. Do $5 a month, commemorative issue, Winston Cup scene. $10 a month, commemorative issue, two Winston Cup scenes. On up, $50, you'll get a Scene Vault podcast jacket. And today, Steve, you and I autographed the very first one. That's right. Of those that will go out to our friend, Chris Wolf. So please help us out if you can on Patreon. That address is patreon.com slash the Scene Vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to just do a one-time show of support, you can do that at paypal.me slash the same bot podcast and anything you can do, we will appreciate because that support helps us continue to do this podcast. September 1994, a Richmond. You're apparently talking to a NASCAR inspector just yep. before the start of the final practice session. And he happens to put his hands through the window of your car and fill some holes. Do you remember that? Is that how it Literally. happened? Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I'm I'm standing there. We're getting ready to go. Uh, I think it was happy hour. We're getting to go run last practice, and uh, and uh, Buster, who's been part of the sport forever, is still part of the sport. Uh, just leaned in to talk to me, and he put both hands up on the roll bar, like something to lean on. And he's like, "Uh oh, yeah." And he said, "He said, man, what's what's?" He said, "I got to tell him." And I said, well, dude, you got to do what you got to do. And uh, track open, and I went out and I ran maybe two or three laps, and they black flagged me and came in, and, yeah, it got ugly from there. And uh, they drilled holes in the, in the top of the roll cage. Do you remember on that day there was a group of riders that approached you after the incident, and you looked at them and said, i got to go do something, and I'll be right back. I do remember that. Now, you know how cynical the press can be. Well, we all said, I was one of them. We said, that's the last we're going to see of that kid. We've been, been here before. And lo and behold, you came back. Now, I don't know if you realize this, though. the thing you did by coming back was to earn a terrific amount of respect from the media because you kept your word. 
Do you remember that? I do remember it. I, and actually, I remember where I went. I went, uh, I think, uh, Jeremy Mayfield, I think. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure it was Jeremy Mayfield. He had made the race, but he wasn't running a full season. And um, or there was something going on there where I thought maybe, because I had been cleared to drive. Mm-hmm. The car had been disqualified, but I had been cleared to drive. So we was racing for the rookie of the year, and I'm thinking, well, if I can get these points, because you had driver points and owner points, but if I could get the driver points – and so I went down to see, and I, I'm pretty sure it was Jeremy Mayfield. I don't even know why I'm thinking that, but I think that's who it was. And uh, the answer was quickly no, and then I came, then I came back and, and talked to you guys. And, and I remember that because I remember that I was shocked y'all thought I wasn't coming back. <laughs> like, damn, I said I was coming back. Like, <laughs> well, now you know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a, that was a um, you know, I talked earlier about how, I had all these obstacles and all these things kept popping up. And, you know, the, my, the year before I ran my first full Xfinity season, I broke my back in a late model. So if you go back and look at it, if you look at a calendar and you go back and look at all the things that happened, there's crazy amount of things that happened in a short period of time. And I tell people all the time when they're going through stuff, like I look at those first five or six years and people outside of it have no idea. They just think, oh, he was running bush cars and running pretty good and, had a good late model career and he wanted to, you know, but they don't see the cuts. You broke your back? Yeah, I broke my back running a late model car. And I did not know that. Yeah. yeah. So wow. that was a year before I, I, I ran full time in Xfinity or cut a bush. So, so there were all these obstacles along the way. And the one with getting thrown out of Richmond was an obstacle. And, and, um, but it, but it, what are you going to do? Right. And and it was what it was, and and um, but it was it was also another one of those obstacles that I had to overcome. At what point did Roush Racing come into the picture? Yeah, so that's a funny story. So, well, I think it's funny. Um, they actually called Ward. So, um, yeah, so they actually had called Ward, and Ward was already working a deal, or actually already had a deal done with with um, Bill Davis, right? Yeah, so yeah, so so Ward had done a deal with Bill Davis and I think Pontiac at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 um we were at dinner and or something and, and uh Ward said, I got a call from some guy named Jeff Smith today from Roush and um uh, wanted to know if I'd be willing to be interested in driving a car. They're building a new team. And uh I said, What'd you tell him? He said, Well, I'm going I got this deal done with Bill, I'm gonna do that. I feel really good about that. I said, Well, hell, give me his number. So, <laughs> so the next day I called Jeff Smith and I said, Hey, I know you called Ward, but this is Jeff calling. <laughs> <laughs> this is Ward. <laughs> and so he's like, Yeah, let's talk. So then um and this is another moment that, that people don't realize that so I went and met with Jack and um and he said, Look, and I was right up front with him. I said, Look, I got a contract with Stavolas. You know, I'm and and they and they said, well, we're not going to talk. And I said, well, why don't we talk and let's see if we think it's something that can work out. And if it is, then I'll go talk to Billy and Mickey. And because, um, you know, you're going to get a chance to drive for Jack Roush. That was a big deal, right? So so I went and met with them, and it seemed like a good fit. And, and, um, and basically it turned into, okay, you know, but you got to get straight with – we can't – Roush can't do anything until you get straight with Billy, right? We're not – 
We're not going to talk about money. We're not going to talk about anything. Like, you got to get, you got to get straight with Billy. And I had read an article where Jack was impressed with Mark Martin because he never asked about money. So I never asked about money. Like, the conversation <laughs> never came up. So, so I called Billy and uh, just told him the truth. I said, hey, I've got this opportunity. And I was hesitant to tell him who it was at first. Um, but he asked me. And so I said, well, look, I'm going to tell you. Um, and I told him. And I, I said, you know, Billy, like without you, I wouldn't be in cup. And uh, I said, but, you know, this is, this is an opportunity for me to, to take that next step. And I had a year left on my contract. And uh, Billy said, well, you know what, Jeff, if you think it's good for you, then I'm not going to stand in your way. And so Billy and Mickey, um, they they released me from my contract and allowed me to go do that. And they didn't have to. They could have said no. And um, and ironically enough, they hired Hutch Strickland, whom I replaced on the day he got sick. Without Billy and Mickey Stavola giving me that shotting cup, um, giving me that opportunity on a day that was – that's a whole other story. But, but, you know, then him saying, yeah – if you think it's good for you, we're not going to stand in your way. I mean, what do you say about people like that? Yeah, you know, and and uh, they 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 gave me the opportunity, and then they gave me the second opportunity by letting by letting me go. And that's, you know, I, I Billy and Mickey were great to me, and they were doing their best to build a team. They just didn't have the they just didn't have the funding and didn't have the sponsorship and all those things that are that a Roush Racing can make happen. They could have treated you like Daga or treated Daryl. They held your feet foot to the fire. They could have, and and uh, and and I was prepared. You know, I was prepared to to race there. You know, if they said no, that was the answer. That was no, and we were going to go forward. And and uh, but they uh, they let me roll. We had Buddy Parrot on the podcast uh, about a year ago, and man, he's an awesome guy. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first impression of working with buddy yeah so i i love buddy parrot um i tell people all the time when i grow up i want to be, be buddy parrot um buddy um my first impression was with buddy was um how kind he was um he didn't know me you know we had passed each other in the garage and you know how it is in the garage right and maybe said a few words but we didn't know each other and from the first minute i sat down with buddy parrot he had me believing that he believed in me. And that's so important as a race car driver, especially a young race car driver. Um, he had me convinced that he and I were going to go to battle and we were going to take everybody on and, um, and we were going to make it happen. And that I was going to be a better driver than any of his other drivers had ever been. And by the way, he crew chief for some pretty... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, he did. Good race car drivers. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and that's that was my first impression. And then in in working with Buddy for all those years, what I what I um, what I really appreciate about Buddy is that he treated everybody with respect. He was he is the he is the single best person from a crew chief standpoint that I ever worked with in regard to getting the most out of his people, and not through fear. Not through threats, but through encouragement and through team building. And when you drove a Buddy Parrot and you worked for Buddy Parrot, you were ready to go fight. You were part of a team and you were going to take everybody else on. 
and Buddy's going to be right there with you. And, but you were going to battle, and you were going to have fun. You were going to have a good time. You were going to cry with together. With Buddy? Yeah. Really? You were going to cry <laughs> together. You were going to cheer together. You were going to do it together. And, and Buddy, was, Buddy was, you know, just, just a good person, just a plain and simple good person. And we had, we had a hell of a good time. We, had, we worked hard, yeah. but we had a good time. You go to Daytona in 1996, the first year, and you finish fifth. And two races later, you're fourth at Richmond. Yeah. And then you don't qualify at Atlanta. Yep. I mean, did that set a mode of panic in the team, or was it just considered a bump in the road? Uh, it, was, it was panic for me. Um, so, so, you know, leaders lead. And Jack Roush, so when we built that team, Jack let Buddy and I do it however we wanted to do it. And then Buddy and I, early on, we, we, really, we really jived and, and – you know, Buddy was, you know, I'm going to run the people and help you with the cars. You drive the car. You help, you help with the cars. Like, we were, we were old school race team, right? And so we, we missed the race. Jack had given us everything we asked for. We had the cars we wanted. We had the people we wanted. We had the bodies we wanted. We had everything we asked for. And we missed the race. And Jack comes down there, and he says to me, he says, um, Jeff, I'm sorry I didn't give you what you needed today. I will do better in the future. Wow. I'll be darned. Yeah. And so here's race three, you know, of me driving for Roush Racing, and we've missed the damn race. We're second in points. We missed the race. And Jack Roush took it. And he didn't let a sponsor call me and get on me. He didn't let the media. He took it. But the only fault he had in it was letting us do what we wanted to do. And, and, and uh, you know, that right there showed me who Jack Roush was. And, and Buddy, Buddy rallied everybody, and those words from Jack rallied everybody. And it was a long week, but, we, but we, we got through it. At what point did you feel like you might really be on to something with Buddy and Jack and the rest of the team? Uh, the day we first met. Ah, really? Yeah. Okay. So, so my second year in Cup, if you looked at numbers, you would say I'm, I'm an idiot. But my second year in Cup, I started to understand that I knew what I needed. So about a quarter of the way through the second year, I knew exactly what that car needed to feel like. I felt like I knew what springs needed to be in it, and I knew what shocks needed to be in it. I started to get the confidence, even though the results don't show it, I started to get the confidence that, you know what, I can do this. And... And I know what I feel like I know what it takes, and so then building that confidence, even though the results didn't show it, I know it sounds crazy, but I just knew inside of me that there was it was all coming together. I just needed the opportunity, and so when we all three first sat down together, and and Jack told me, you know, look, and what was weird about it, he didn't want us working with Liberty. So we were the third team, but he didn't want us working with them. No kidding. He wanted wow. us doing it okay. differently than yeah. they were doing it. And so Steve Mill and uh, Steve Mill and Howard Comstock and those guys, they had been told, you're not going to work. This team's going to kick your ass, and, and we're going to show you. So it was, we were immediately like we weren't teammates. Like we were, we were owned by the wow. same guy okay. working against each other. Yeah. Right. So we didn't get jacked from those guys, and so we were we were on our own, and and uh, in regard to everything, and so when we came out and went to Daytona and ran fifth, 
Ted Musgrave was furious at me when that race was over. Was he really? Because he thought I should have gone with him at some point, and I didn't because it – I don't even remember, but it wasn't the right thing for me yeah, to do for right. me. He was furious. So I'm happy as hell. Brand new team, finished fifth, Daytona 500, and my teammate is at, is at the fuel pumps just reaming my ass. He was so <laughs> mad at me. And I'm like, what the hell? You know, yeah. then we go to Richmond the next week, and we should have won that race. We led yeah. the majority of that race and had a bad pit stop late. So it, but it was, it was conflict from day one. But when Jack told me, we're going to let you have build the cars you want. We're going to bring you the motors. Buddy, we're going to let you hire the people you want. This is, you, y'all, this is your team. Y'all go do it. Well, given what you just said, 1997 was a breakout year. Three wins, more than double the top fives, and uh, six more top ten. So what you just said, was that a particular reason for the performance it was it was time it was yeah. it was it was we had a you know i was coming into my own we i was understanding what my cars needed to feel like what we needed to do to make them drive the way i wanted them to drive uh we had a hungry young group of people we were working hard we were testing we were we were we were just all together we were just we had conflict and strife as every team does but we were just together as a team and, and coming all together at a time when we were all doing really good at each individual role. And, and uh, it, was just, it was just a matter of timing. But Jack giving us the opportunity right. to do it the way we wanted to do it, that was, that was the biggest part of it. Text. The, the configuration of the track, there's a huge pileup going into turn one on the first lap. How did you make it to Victory Lane that day? So, um, I mean, honestly, if you go back and look at my career, that's really my race. That's my that's what I was good at. If everybody could run wide open and it wasn't that big of a you know, and the the track had a lot of grip and the tires didn't fall off, that's not that's not a me race. If you look at places like Michigan, like I never really wanted Michigan in a Cup car, there's a reason for that. Uh, my strength was when you know when adversity happened and. It's a slick racetrack. The tires are going to fall off. You get that's when I was that's when I was my best. I wasn't the fastest driver, but I was really consistent. And I was I if if you were supposed to do something, I could do it lap after lap after lap. So those races that were tough like that, you know, so I was good at Darlington. I was good at Rockingham. I was good at the short tracks. That's why. And so Texas fell right into that. Texas fell into uh, well. The other thing is when we all went there to test the first time, a lot of people said this track is messed up. They, there was a lot of complaining, a lot of just, you know, and it, it, it was messed up. But they were going to have a race. And so, so me and my team, we were really good at looking at things and saying, it's the same for everybody, and we just go to work. And we didn't approach that race as, oh, my God, this is the biggest piece of crap place ever built. We approached it as, yeah, but that's an opportunity. And, <laughs> and yeah. you know, yeah. so sure. some of it was just playing a simple mindset. Like, and, and. And Dale Jarrett was really fast that day. He had a mechanical issue, and it just, it just all fell into place. Well, what did it mean to you personally to win that first Winston Cup, right? Uh, I know what it meant to Kim. <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, you go back and think about it. It's been a long time since I won. So, you know, I won an Xfinity race. Um, what would that have been, three years prior to that? And, and – um, here you are trying to earn your way into the sport. Uh, I won Rookie of the Year, uh, but it's time to deliver, man. You're driving for Jack Roush. It's time to deliver. And 
fortunately, that rookie, my, my, what my rookie year was the first year at Roush, we ran well, but we couldn't execute. And Jack used to tell me that I was like the dog chasing, I was a dog chasing that car and I caught it, but didn't know what the hell to do once I caught it. <laughs> you know, he said, that, that's what he told yeah. me. You remind me, that's what he remind So, so on that day, putting it all together, you know, just putting it all together and, and, uh, getting it behind you. You know, because yeah. we had put ourselves in position way a lot of times that first year with Roush, but we didn't execute. And on that day, on where a lot of people didn't execute, we did, and that was just it was just really gratifying. You win three races in 1997. You win, I think, a couple in 1998. Then you win six races in 1999, and you win the Winston Noble five million dollar bonus at Darlington. Jeff, what is it like to ride that kind of wave of success? Um, so for me, um, I'm I'm not a fun I'm not the fun guy. I'm the guy that in Victory Lane is thinking about how are we going to get better next week. And so I didn't enjoy it as much as I should have. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but you know when you when you walk in the garage and your competition looks and says, we're going to have to beat that team. You know, we didn't always have timing and scoring, right? When you roll out there on the racetrack and everybody picks up their stopwatch, <laughs> yeah. that's, yeah. that's yeah. the ultimate goal. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, to be there is um, you, you have so much respect for your peers that you want to beat them. Not because you don't like them, because you respect them. And when you are one of those guys that everybody's watching, um, that's man, that's it. You know, the respect of your peers is the ultimate compliment, even if they don't have to, they don't have to say it. And that's just that's what you work for. You work for you work for your peers respecting you and knowing you're you're one of those guys that you're going to have to beat. Jeff, the year 2000, you have another great year. You win four races. You finish third in the point standings. Your best ever showing in the standings. However, the year 2000 was also a very, very bad year in the sport with the loss of drivers in each of NASCAR's three national divisions. And all of a sudden, you're kind of at the forefront of this huge safety debate and you're one of the go-to guys about safety and what you think ought to happen with seats and soft walls and Hans devices and whatever. Was that something that you felt prepared for, to be that kind of spokesman, that go-to guy for the press? Or were you maybe kind of learning to be a voice in the garage as you went along? Well, I didn't go looking for that. Um, you know what I mean? I just... My the way my brain works works against me sometimes and works for me sometimes. I'm very methodical and very. I like to do. I like information, and with good information, I feel like I can make good decisions. I'm not a good impulse decision maker. I'm a good. If I get all the information, I feel like I make really good decisions. So that safety thing, you know, I wasn't the guy in the garage buying that it was normal. And some of the theories I was was hearing just made no sense to me whatsoever. And so I wanted to get more information. So we started, my wife and I started investing in some stuff, getting some information. And and I was hearing a lot of things that I just just did plain and simple disagreed with. And I thought that it needed to be said. And um, it wasn't acceptable to lose Adam Petty. It wasn't acceptable to lose, you know, 
anybody. That wasn't acceptable, and it didn't. It wasn't okay to just say that's part of the sport, and it wasn't okay to say, well, they're young and not big enough. And uh, like, no, that's crazy. And you got to remember, I broke my back in a car that I built, in a seat that I installed. It was seat belts that I installed, and I did them wrong. So when I did that, when I broke my back and did it wrong, then what that told me was we're responsible for what we do. We have a role in playing. So what are we doing as a sport to make it safer than it is today? Understanding that it's not going to – there's way if, – if, if this was the problem. People thought I was scared when, in fact, I was just educated. I, if I was scared, I'd have quit. But it was, it's stupid to say, well, that's just how it is. That's a bunch of crap. Go to work and make it better. And so, so it wasn't right. It wasn't right that these young men were getting killed, and it was, I don't want to say being dismissed, but it wasn't being addressed. Preach, Brother Jeff. Preach. And, I mean, I it just, yeah, it I wasn't, it. It wasn't yeah. being addressed. Yeah. And it wasn't like it was a secret. That's what drove me nuts. It's like we're not supposed to talk about it. And trust me, I caught hell for talking about it. I mean, it, it, I, it was not, I was not popular with a lot of people. I can imagine a couple that you caught hell and, from. And, and <laughs> yeah. you know, I just, you know, I didn't care. For I'd had enough success where I didn't have to care. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. If, if yeah. I was rookie yeah. Jeff, I couldn't have done that. If I was third-year Jeff, I couldn't have done that. But I had won enough races to where they're not going to they're not going to move me out of here because of these opinions. I've got the owner. My my Jack was a hundred percent supporting me. He just asked me to be respectful. I had some other drivers whose owners that told them to shut the hell up, and Jack never did that to me. Jack said, "You be respectful, but you do what you got to do." And so I had it was I was the right time in my career, and I had the, the the people behind me backing me up, and and what I was saying was right. Well, and yes, I knew it was, it was right. absolutely As an right. aside, it was during this period of time that you became the media's go-to guy. Here's a guy who makes sense in the garage area. That was our philosophy. To be honest with you. Well, I thank you. I appreciate that's a compliment. I appreciate that. And I didn't, I didn't go looking for that. You know what I mean? No. I didn't go looking for it. It's just that, that was, there was just some stupid stuff going on that didn't have to happen. And, and uh, it was just my time that I could step up and, and had the support of people around me. And, and we moved the ball. We, we moved the ball. We made a lot of good stuff happen. Uh, and I was part of that process. It wasn't the entire process by any means. I was part of that process. And the difference today is that we just saw this Ryan Newman crash, right? And I didn't have to pick up the phone and raise hell at somebody. I knew that NASCAR was on it. And the change from then to now is, I mean, it went from being recommended to wear a helmet. Remember that. The rule book recommended that you wear a helmet. Recommended. It was recommended. <laughs> you didn't, they didn't want yeah. the liability telling you what to do. To having NASCAR, I don't care what anybody says, NASCAR in regard to, to, to safety leads motorsports in regard to their research and development, in regard to all the things that they do. They are the leaders in motorsports. Are there things that could do better? Of course. But they're the leaders. And, and think about the change between being reactive to proactive. It's two different mindsets, and now they're, they, they're very proactive. So, Jeff, the year 2000, you're on one side of the debate <laughs> when it comes to safety. And then in September at Richmond, Dell Earnhardt gets a handful of reporters in his holler 
And and he kind of goes off about drivers thinking the cars are going too fast and full face helmets and so forth and calls them candy asses and the whole oh, yeah. kerosene rag thing. Oh, yeah. What was your reaction to that? And is safety anything that you had actually ever talked to Dell about? So somewhere, so if you remember, remember the left side Burton net that we yeah. we built? So yeah. somewhere in your archives, there's a quote from, from Dale Earnhardt saying that that thing saved him. So it was a little bit of push and pull, right? Like we were making it better. But this New Hampshire conversation had pushed a lot of people over the edge about, you know, we need to slow the cars down in New Hampshire. Clearly, there's an issue in New Hampshire, so we don't know how to fix it, so we're just going to slow the cars down, right? Well, that infuriated people, which, by the way, that was a race I led 300 laps. All 300 laps. (laughs) So that infuriated people, and that set off the – that set off the, the, you know, a lot of comments about safety and those kind of things. But in my world, I, I didn't know if the plate was the right thing to do or not. But what I did know is at least they were doing something, right? Sure. At least they were trying something. To me, that was a good sign. Like, damn, they realized we got an issue. They can't fix the racetrack because they don't know how to fix it at that point. But let's do something. But that infuriated people. It really made them mad. And, um, it pissed them off even more that so we went to work and we led all 300 laps not because we didn't lead all 300 laps because the restrictor plate was on the car we led all 300 laps because we went to milwaukee and tested for two days with the restrictor plate <laughs> and worked our ass yeah. off yeah and then jack yeah. flew an engine in that they had been working on he saw how hard we were working on it he flew an engine in that we put in that was way better than what we had in practice because they saw they're like if you're gonna work that hard we're gonna work that hard and so we had more power, we put more effort into it, and we let every damn lap because the plate created an opportunity. So it wasn't a safety thing. You just went to school There's on your homework. Prepared. Well, yeah. no, well, it was, it's, it 100% was a safety thing, what NASCAR was trying to do. But most teams and drivers just started bitching and raising hell about it. We went to work. A 2001 Daytona 500, what was your reaction to everything that happened at the end of that race. And as an addendum, were you pleased to see NASCAR really take a more proactive stance after that race than it had before? So, so in regard to that, it had, it had started. Okay, so being one of the guys that was beating the drum and raising hell and having conversations behind closed doors, the process had started. NASCAR had started to look and say, you know what, we have to be better. And, and listen, some of that was Brian France. You know, people give Brian France a hard time about stuff, and a lot of it's un, un, not, of it's not fair. Brian France was one of the guys that was like, yeah, we can do this better. We can be safer. And, and you know, I, I, the, the, the process had gotten started, and clearly the, the tragedy, the Earnhardt tragedy, kicked it in high gear. But the process, without everything that happened before that, you don't. It doesn't happen the way it happened, and and um, so I don't. I don't think we should dismiss all the work that had gone on and the tragedies we had had before Dale's tragedy. It was, you know, Dale's was the was the ultimate, right? That that pushed it over the edge. 
but I don't think we should dismiss what happened prior to that and the sacrifices that other drivers made prior to that. Um, so, uh, you know, listen, that, that, that was a, um, that was just, that was a, it was a horrible time when, when, when Adam and Tony and, and, and Kenny, when all those guys got killed and then Dale got killed, it was just a horrible time for everybody. Uh, certainly worse for the families, but the sport was suffering and, and, um, and something had to be done. Hey, Scene Vault Podcast listeners, this is Eric Quinn from QWare. The 2020 NASCAR season is underway, and we've seen some really awesome racing so far this year, and awesome NASCAR history is being made. The Scene Vault Podcast is also making history. Not only are Rick and Steve providing some of the best NASCAR interviews available, they're creating some amazing video content as well. At QWare, we are even more excited to be involved with the Scene Vault Podcast in 2020. If you're wondering what QWare is, we provide the most powerful, simple-to-use, cloud-based facilities management system available. If you get a chance, check us out at QWareCMMS.com. That's Q-W-A-R-E-C-M-M-S.com. And just take a look and see what we can do for your facilities maintenance team. Whether you're working in an office, at a factory, at a church, or school, or a healthcare facility, or some other kind of building, QWare can help your facilities team be at the top of their game. Check us out, qwarecmms.com. And now let's get back to the podcast. Steve, our Winston Cup scene issue of the week way back in episode 12. 12! That seems like an eternity ago. <laughs> Sure I would have does. never thought we'd make it to episode 20. <laughs> Much less, I think this is episode 83, and we're actually kind of making plans for our 100th episode. That's right. <laughs> but our issue of the week way back in episode 12 was the one that featured coverage of Jeff Burton's disqualification at Richmond. And so we've mentioned it yeah. a time or two since. So we, I don't know that we necessarily want to go too deep into that. But but what Jeff did mention was the fact that it was just one more hurdle in his career that he had to clear. Now, last week he talked about kind of bouncing around from team to team. Right. In this episode, he talked about the fact that the year before he ran his very first full-time Bush Series season in 1989, he talked about how he had broken his back in a late model crash. I did not know that. I didn't either, and I told all. him so. Yeah. That's the first time I'd ever heard that. And to be honest with you, as somebody who's had trouble with my back for two or three years now, that's some pain. And to think about going through that just in general, but in particular to get inside a race car at a time when the seats weren't cocoons right. and a little yes. bit uncomfortable, I, I don't know that to I'm To race that yeah. way means you really, really want it. You're driven to do it. Yes. And Steve, again, it's kind of crazy, but almost every week here on the podcast, we discover these potential deals that were either being discussed in the garage or actually going down behind mm -hmm. the scenes that nobody ever knew about. And this episode is no different. Rouse Racing actually called Ward first. That's right. And they were going to maybe see if they could talk to him, but he had already gotten pretty far down the road with Bill Davis Racing and I don't know that a signed contract was in place, but he was far enough along to where he felt comfortable enough, you know, saying, yeah, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stick with what I got right. versus what I may got. <laughs> <laughs> 
And Steve, that opened the door for Jeff. And Jeff told Ward, do you mind if I call Roush? That opened the door for Jeff to really hit the heights of his career. And Steve, the thing is, the Stavola brothers, who Jeff was driving for at the time, who he broke into the Winston Cup ranks with, they could have very well held Jeff's feet to the fire. Indeed, indeed. And when Jeff approached Bill and Mickey Stavola, they said, probably don't want to see you go, but if you feel like this is going to advance your career, you have our blessings. That is one attitude an owner can take. But most owners will also say, listen, I can keep him if I want to, but deep down inside, does he really want to be here? And they have to question that sometimes. And if in their minds that he doesn't really want to be with them, that's not a very good thing. So they're more than willing to let him go ahead and advance his career in this particular case. Steve, we have talked about Darrell Walter's contract squabbles before, but those names on the dotted lines have... <laughs> they have created quite the interesting scenarios over the years, haven't they? I, by all means. <laughs> Give me an example well, or let me two. T- let me tell you a story. Okay. All right. well, there was a time back when I broke into this sport that there were very few, if any, contracts. Most of them were handshake deals. All right? That meant that a driver could negotiate with a team owner and they would come across a figure that both of them liked, and they said, okay, that's what we'll do, and they shook hands and went away and did their thing. I know this because a couple of years after Buddy Baker had stopped driving for the Petties, he told me the story about how the deal came down, that he was approached by Lee Petty and said, we want to field the second car and select races. We want you to drive it. But he said, okay, let's talk. So Lee came in and said, how about driving it for this much? And Buddy said, what? (laughs) Excuse me. Don't you think that's a little bit low? And he said, Lee said back, well, uh, you can't blame a guy for driving. (laughs) So they did reach an agreement. That's pretty much the way it went. It wasn't contracts business until the 70s moved on. And then the contracts were usually for three years. Uh Uh-huh. Here was the thinking. They had a sponsor and they had a driver. They wanted to sign him for three years because the first year, they didn't expect it to do all that well. They have to let everybody adapt. And the second year, that's when we should be rising up. And the third year, we should be kicking butt. <laughs> didn't always work that way. But that yeah. was a theory behind the three-year contract we heard about almost constantly. Well, Steve, you might want to kick back for this one. Uh-oh. <laughs> Once upon a time in the Bush series, there was a team that had a contract with a sponsor, okay? Now, we'll call that Team A and Sponsor A. Gotcha. Another sponsor came into the mix. We'll call that Sponsor B, and Sponsor B had more money to pay. Now we have a problem. (laughs) And I distinctly remember standing in that team's holler talking with the team owner about the deal, and I said something about the fact that Sponsor A had a contract with Team A. And the team owner looked at me and he said, yeah, but they don't have a contract with Team B. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to follow you here. <laughs> okay. So basically what this guy was going to do was he was going to dissolve on paper Team A that had the contract with Sponsor A. Right. And he was going to form what he considered to be a completely different organization in Team B. <laughs> Are you following me here? 
Well, I'm trying. Okay. <laughs> no, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, I wrote whatever I wrote. I didn't make any kind of commentary. I just wrote what I knew to be the hard facts. Right. right. And I was going to let the reader decide what he or she team thought. Owner was going to dissolve Team A yes. to form a Team B to get sponsor B. Uh huh. For more money. Yes. <laughs> well, I wrote whatever I wrote. And the team owner did not like it. <laughs> no kidding. And he called me everything but Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> That's a heck of a lot, by the way. And Steve, I got to tell you, he told me in no uncertain terms that his drivers, his crew chiefs, his crew members would never talk to me again ever. <laughs> and I'm like, holy cow, man. I'm just, I'm just trying to do my job, just trying to write some stories here. But these were two separate teams, Team A, Team B. They were separate deals, separate deals. And one didn't have anything to do with the other. They were completely offended that I hadn't made a big enough distinction between the two. And this strike, or whatever you want to call it, lasted a week or two. And at some point, one of the team's drivers agreed to meet me for lunch to kind of clear up the air. Now, after I had been getting blasted for not making a big enough distinction about the two different teams, this joker shows up for lunch, and he's wearing a work shirt from the original team. <laughs> <laughs> from Team A. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I have laughed about that for 20 years. <laughs> I bet you have. That is funny. And if you increase your Patreon support enough, I'll name names. <laughs> But Steve, Jeff Burton winds up getting the deal with Roush Racing. He loves Buddy Parrott. I don't know how you can know not Buddy Parrott yeah. and not love him, but things click right off the bat, but Jeff fails to qualify in Atlanta, and his first reaction is to kind of panic because here he is in his first really big, really competitive ride, huge sponsorship, and he's nervous because he and Buddy have kind of asked for certain things, and they want certain things, and going to right. do things a certain way. And so the pressure's on them to get the job done. Yeah. And so he's obviously very understandably nervous about it. And Jack was the one to apologize. And he said, after Jeff and the team failed to qualify in Atlanta, he said, I'm sorry I didn't give you guys what you needed today. Well, that is called leadership, in my opinion. What happened there was Jack Roush didn't come in and blame anybody. Yes. That is yeah. not a good yeah. strategy. I've spent this much money, and you better, yeah, by God, exactly. didn't get the job done. Yeah. Yeah, didn't do the blame. Yeah. By saying the problem was with me and I didn't give you enough of what you needed, that instills confidence in Buddy and Jeff and gives them the feeling they have an owner who really cares about them. That makes them more confident in what they can do. Steve, another thing that really kind of surprised me was the fact that Jack Roush told Jeff and Buddy that, in effect— they were not teammates with Mark Martin and Ted Musgrave or their crew chiefs. Yeah, he was adopting a philosophy that was pretty much different from what a lot of other multi-car team owners was using. There were two trains of thought. One, you had Jack's position. Everybody is in competition with everybody else. I think his strategy was that if one team started to show they were getting the edge, or he didn't want them to give up anything by passing it along to other teams. He wanted the other teams to get better yeah. by trying to reach their status. Now, other team owners with multi-car teams said you must share 
information. If you're doing something that is so much better than my other guys, you need to go and tell them. And, you know, both methods, I will say this, did work to a certain degree, but Jack's method was strictly competition within the team. Well, Steve, here's some inside baseball that I did not remember. Jeff finished fifth at Daytona his first year with Ross Racing, and after the race, <laughs> he said Ted Musgrave was absolutely livid with yeah, him by not for not helping him out in the draft. Right. And sure enough, you go back to that issue of Winston Cup scene, and there's a photo of Ted Musgrave. <laughs> He's not exactly in Jeff's face, but you can tell by the expression on his face that uh, he's not too happy. This is something you're going to run into when you have yeah. teammates. Yeah, quote-unquote teammates. So, when do you help him and when do you not? And, Steve, even though Jeff started having some pretty tremendous success on the racetrack, he said he was the type who didn't really enjoy it the way that he should have. We've both seen that mindset before. Yeah, it's always, can I get better? Yeah. You know, I'm, things are going well right now, and I'm not going to really think about things going wrong. I'm going to think about getting better, and that helps me in my competition. I think you see that in a lot of different fields. When I wrote the book, Go Flood, on the people who worked in mission control during the Apollo program, they were helping land people on the surface of the moon, but to a person, they all said, we didn't take the time to appreciate it. Yeah. We were just going into work. We were sitting on the consoles. We were doing the math. We were doing the engineering. We were doing this. We were working the systems. And we didn't appreciate the fact that what we were doing was this big, momentous thing that so many people around the world were paying attention to. Right. And you know, this is something that not nearly on that scale, but it is an individual thing. I always wrote the best I knew how to write the subject matter I was writing. I never was really satisfied that that was the best I could do. I just about to try to go and write better the next time. And that made me, you know, more conscientious about what I was doing. I think that's kind of the same thing that Jeff had individually during this time. I think a lot of people are guilty of not being able to see the forest for the trees. Because when you and I were covering the sport, we would write a story, file a story, it would get published, then we would go to the next race and we would write our story, file our story, and it would be published in the next issue. Who were we writing for? Sometimes I think a lot of people get lost in the fact that they're just producing content and not thinking about the end user. Right. Like That's what said, I meant when yeah, I talked like about Like you said, this you're earlier. trying to improve as a writer. Right. You're doing that with the end user. For the reader. The reader in mind. As unfortunate as it is, Jeff didn't take the time to appreciate the success that he had because he was riding one more heck of a wave of success back in that time. So then, Steve, again, I thought that the most powerful part of this interview that we did with Jeff was him talking about his role in the safety controversies of the years 2000, 2001. And Steve, he said it wasn't acceptable to lose Adam or Kenny or Tony. And he said that it wasn't okay to basically explain their losses away as just being a part of the sport. It wasn't okay to say racing is dangerous sports and this kind of thing is going to happen. No, the right thing was racing is a dangerous sport, but how do we stop this kind yeah. of thing from happening? I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to say and say that when Jeff said that there were people who claimed that he was afraid or scared, because he was talking about safety, talking about speed, talking about what they could do better. He didn't name Dale Earnhardt by name. But everybody knew. But Dale Earnhardt was 
the old school guy. That's right. He yeah. was the guy who sat in Richmond and said, hey, these candy ass drivers and the kerosene rag and talked about full face helmets, open face helmets being too heavy and, and all that kind of thing. In Dale Sr.'s defense, he had walked away from some hellacious crashes. Over no this. doubt about it. What he had worked for him. You couldn't ask him to go against his personality. Yeah. Are you going to be the one to tell Adele Earnhardt that he has to wear a Hans device? <laughs> no, you're not. Absolutely not. So it was kind of a rock and a hard place. And sadly, as we were to learn later, Dale Earnhardt proved to be the catalyst yeah. for many, many, many of the safety innovations that have taken place since 2001. Sort of ironic. We brought that point up to Jeff, that Dale Earnhardt's accident kind of set all this in motion. The fact is, there was a lot of talk before the 2001 Daytona 500 because of the three fatal accidents in the year 2000. And the fact is, you had a certain portion of that garage they were very old school. They were very set in their ways. It wasn't just Dale Earnhardt. Jeff's entire perspective was very powerful. And Steve, in going through our issue of the week, this thing was incredibly packed. And this is what Jeff had to say back then, the September 21st, year 2000 issue of Winston Cup Scene. If a driver has a problem with the rules that NASCAR has made, they don't have to come. They can stay at home. If a driver feels that what we're doing isn't safe, they don't have to come. They can stay at home. For people to complain about something which will make it safer is ludicrous to me. If we can minimize the effects of a wreck to a driver or to fans or to anybody, I just can't imagine how that's wrong. If there is a set of drivers that don't want to be in the forefront of safety, they want to rely on other people to do that, I don't have a problem with that. But that doesn't mean that I'm wrong or that they're wrong. That just means that we're different. And he's right. And Steve, Jeff wasn't finished. And what he said 19 years ago was very similar to what he told us a couple of weeks ago when we sat down with him. He said, when you have two people get killed, this was before Tony Roper's accident at the truck race in Texas in October. He said, when you have two people get killed, if that doesn't bother you, then there's something wrong with you. You have to have enough sense to look at it and say something's wrong, and that's not because I'm a wimp. That's not because I'm scared. That's because I'm smart. I've got a five-year-old daughter, and I've got a wife, and I've got brothers, a mother, and a father. I've got things I want to do in my life, and if I can make it safer, I'm going to make it safer. If you're not willing to look at what's happened to other people and learn from that, it doesn't make you brave. It makes you dumb. Now, I want you to concentrate on those words. Yeah. Those words typify exactly who Jeff Burton is. His answers and his reasoning, they are logical, they are comprehensive, and I tell you what, this is the kind of driver Jeff Burton was, but it went beyond driving. It went to the entire concept of what is good for racing. And let me tell you what I think it is. It's very philosophical, and one reason why he's considered the best diplomat the sport ever had. Again, I'm going to go out on another limb, and I'm going to say that for him to take this strong a stance in the wake of what Dell Earnhardt is saying about wimpy drivers and candy-ass drivers and all that. That takes some courage. Yeah. Jeff was being a stand-up guy here, and I, he was going in the face of what a seven-time most popular driver, legend, mythical driver like Dell Earnhardt was saying. 
And he was saying, hey, you know what? It ain't necessarily right. That's called integrity. So, Steve, this week, our friend Brian Kelb, he gets on Instagram and Twitter, <laughs> and he posts a Benny Parsons Copenhagen T-shirt. Was that with the Jacksons? <laughs> <laughs> Benny and the Jets? No, it was Benny and the Copenhagens. <laughs> but that is a, what, mid-1980s T-shirt, great condition, and Brian was actually wearing it. It fit him. Again, we say it every week. Brian has the darndest knack for being able to come up with some just extraordinary pieces of history. Well, that T-shirt alone is extraordinary because Benny retired in 1988. Yeah. And uh, you know how long ago that was. Right. Well, this shirt is older than that. (laughs) So follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter and check out some of these amazing treasures that he has available. Check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.com. Etsy.com. That's Speedway, T-S-J dot E-T-S-Y dot com. If you have a favorite driver, more than likely, Brian is going to be able to help you out. Steve, the headline on the race lead in the September 21st, 2000 issue of Winston Cup scene read, Wire to Wire. Burton jumps back into title contention with dominating and boring (laughs) win. Now, I would say that boring like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. (laughs) Jeff and Jack Roush and crew chief Frankie Stoddard, they probably had to think that it was an awesome victory, beautiful win. But yeah, a driver leading all 300 laps of a race that event probably wasn't the most exciting to watch. <laughs> what do you think would be on social media if it was available back then? I don't even want to talk about it. I don't even want to consider that. But NASCAR announced its decision to run restrictor plates on the cars just eight days before the race. So imagine the pressure that that put on the engine departments. Absolutely. I mean, come on. This big a change. To yeah. the, you know how these yeah. guys yeah. Engines are prepared to the micro-inch. Yeah. I mean, they are just, any little thing on an engine can change performance. And now you got something like a restrictor plate, which you have to use eight days from now? Uh-uh. There was a scene on the circuit item in this issue about all the preparations that were being done, and Deb Williams wrote it. And so she had what time flights were <laughs> leaving to go to the racetrack, the specific 9.24 p.m., th- those dates and times and everything. She was very specific in her details, as she always was, and that makes her to this day such a really good reporter. But Robert Yates Racing's engine shop closed only for a couple of hours each day. And they had 65 people in their engine department. And Doug Yates, who headed up the team's engine department, Doug is, of course, Robert Yates' son. He said in Deb's story, it's kind of like getting ready for the Daytona 500 in three or four days. A lot of dynos have been running 24 hours a day. Oh, I can just imagine. And Randy Dorton, who headed up the engine program at Hendrick Motorsports, he said, you're worrying about this stuff. You lose sleep. You don't eat, and then you're grabbing stuff on the road, and you're working late hours. It's easy for your health to get run down. I'm tired, as a lot of people are this week. Not only does it pay a toll on you physically, but mentally, 
it does too. I can certainly understand that. And I'd like to make one comment here. What happened to these guys about the mental and physical pressure was because they had such little time to make a major right. adaptation. Yeah. You have noticed now, for many years now, that NASCAR tries to announce any changes that it's going to make well in advance. Money is definitely one reason, but this is another. I don't want to be an apologist for NASCAR, but they were at a point where they had to do something. Yeah, I know that. And there were so many voices going on at that time. I mean, I talked to Gary Nelson for the book that I've written on the 2001 Daytona 500. He said that they were getting letters all the time. This is what you need to do. That's what you need to do. Right. We were printing letters to the editor in Winston Cup saying what NASCAR should do. We wrote columns about what NASCAR goes on to this day. Yeah. So there was so much noise from the drivers and the public that NASCAR had to do something. Well, they had to do something anyway. Yeah. Because of what had happened. Yeah. But for them to come up with this restrictor plate, was it the best solution? I don't know. But it was the quickest. It certainly wasn't the easiest. No. There was a big push for them to add soft walls. And just throw up some barriers. Well, those hadn't been tested out. There was an IROC race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway a couple years before that where Ari Leindock hit a safety barrier and it slung him back into traffic. There were so many things that were being suggested but hadn't been tested out yet. Are you going to make a problem worse? Yeah. Teams hit the track for the very first practice on September 15th. And as the session got underway, reporters and photographers, they were right near the fence in turn three. They were going to watch the cars come into that turn, see what the difference was. Teams were gathered on top of their transporters. They were watching Gary Nelson, who was the Winston Cup director at the time. He was there, and the cars were going slower through that turn. So if they were going slower into that turn, which had been so dangerous, evidently, then mission accomplished for NASCAR. But you go into the race and Jeff Burton proceeds to lead all 300 laps. So I don't want to say it was a no-win situation, but they had to do something. Well, this is a situation where the Roush team hit upon something in that engine with a restrictor plate that worked for them. Yes, yeah. And that goes on in racing almost all the time. One team that makes the quickest adaptation is the strongest team, and this is a prime example of that. Steve, the win was Jeff's fourth in 12 Winston Cup races at New Hampshire, and it, at the time, moved him from fourth all the way up to second in the point standings, 168 behind Bobby Labonte. And in leading all 300 laps, Jeff became only the third driver in NASCAR's post-1972 modern era to lead every lap of an event. Kel Yarbrough had won both of those races. He led every lap at Bristol in 1973 and at Nashville in 1978. Driving for Junior Johnson. Driving for Junior Johnson in both cases, wasn't it? Yes. So in the end, Jeff said, I didn't want to come here and race with plates any more than anybody else. But when everybody else was bitching and moaning and groaning, I was thinking about getting prepared. And that right there is Jeff Burton. Exactly. That explains what it means to be Jeff Burton. And Steve, we've talked about Dale Earnhardt and his stance on safety. And Steve, I don't know that that stance, as opposed to Jeff's stance on the matter, they were both pretty well known. But what happened in this race might not have been a coincidence. Do you think? Because they were kind of <laughs> diametrically opposed to each other 
on the completely opposite sides of the fence. And they were diametrically opposed to each other on the track. (laughs) (laughs) Jeff went to lap Dale on lap 190, and when he did, he got popped a little bit by the old number three Chevrolet. And then there was a restart on lap 254, and Earnhardt again got into Burton trying to get his lap back. And as they raced side-by-side down the backstretch, Bobby Labonte tried to dive underneath them both to make it three wide in an attempt to take the lead. And that forced Earnhardt into Jeff a third time. You think Jeff is getting a little bit tired of this? I bet he was. (laughs) Now, Earnhardt wound up getting back into the lead lap for a brief time. And when Jeff got back to him, it took Jeff three laps to finally put Earnhardt down again. That is not surprising. (laughs) So was this a coincidence? I don't think so. (laughs) Even then, it wasn't over. Earnhardt actually bumped Jeff under the next caution. Under the caution. Under the caution. And once the green flag came back out, they went at it like there was no tomorrow. Earnhardt trying to stay on the lead lap and Jeff trying to put him down again. And Jeff said in the race lead, he said, I didn't take kindly to him hitting me under caution. I didn't think so. (laughs) I made contact with one car all day long and it was him three times. It wasn't going to happen a whole lot longer because I wasn't going to let the three car ruin the race for us. I let a lot of people get their lap back today, <laughs> but he wasn't going to be one of them. <laughs> well, let's face it. When a driver manages to get Dale Earnhardt down a lap, uh, I'm certain he wants to keep him there. But on the other hand, when Dale Earnhardt gets down a lap and has the opportunity to take it back, he's going to try every way possible. Dale wound up in 12th place at the end of the day, and of course, he was not happy about what he called sorry racing that day. He was quoted in the sidebar, said, this is not Winston Cup racing. I hope to hell we don't do it anymore. Obviously, with that kind of butt kicking, other drivers weren't exactly thrilled with what had taken place that day. Jimmy Spencer said, I'm glad I didn't pay 50 bucks to see that show. Rusty Wallace said, it sucked. (laughs) Come on, Rusty. Say what you mean. (laughs) And then Earnhardt, even then, he wasn't finished. He said, I guess NASCAR knows what they want. If they want sorry racing for the fans, that's what they want. If I was a race fan, I wouldn't buy a ticket to a restrictor plate race on a short track. Now, that right there, I mean, calling New Hampshire a short track, come on, Dale. (laughs) (laughs) But he concluded, we're supposed to be racing Winston Cup, elite racing. To degrade us down to late model stock racing is pretty bad. Well, that is definitely pretty strong. But when the drivers are faced with a situation where an entire type of racing is new, on a track different from what they're experiencing, they're not going to hold back. They're going to tell you that it was very good or that it was very bad. Now, in this particular case, most of them said it was bad. As I said before, this issue was 88 pages long, and obviously it wasn't all about New Hampshire and safety. Jeff Gordon had won at Richmond a couple of weeks before, but afterward it was discovered that the intake manifold on his engine was constructed of magnesium instead of aluminum, and that was apparently a pretty big (laughs) no-no. Crew chief Robbie Loomis was hammered with a $25,000 fine, and Jeff and team owner Rick Hendrick, they were both docked 100 points. Pretty steep, but the rule specifies aluminum, and that's all there is to it. The news in this issue was that the team was going to appeal the penalties, and I actually checked a couple of issues later and found the result, and that appeal was denied. So they had to pay up. (laughs) 
<laughs> and there was a news item in this issue about Michael Waltrip joining Dell Earnhardt Incorporated for the 2001 season, and another about Ron Hornaday getting the boot from DEI to make room for Waltrip. We all know what happened there. So that was a little bit of a foreshadowing of what would happen in 2001. And then there was also news that Roush Racing was working on a deal to make Hank Aaron an owner of its number 16 team with driver Kevin LePage with possible sponsorship from the Denny's restaurant chain. Hank Aaron, man. How cool would it have been to get Hank Aaron? Oh, great. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Hank Aaron. I mean, he is the icon right. in baseball. So but it we, would have been neat just to meet him and shake his hand. Oh, man. absolutely. And we've seen other athletic celebrities yeah. have their names associated with race teams. And it either hasn't come about or it hadn't lasted very long. Joe Gibbs Racing, of course, that's an entirely different situation. You know, the coach of the Super Bowl, Washington Redskins, has been a massive success in cup competition. Somebody at Roush Racing was one of two things. Well, obviously, they were thinking outside the box. But also, I can't help but wonder if somebody at Roush Racing just wasn't a baseball fan because you had the possibility that Hank Aaron might come on board. And then eventually, John Henry, the principal owner of the Boston Red Sox, came along, and it's now actually known as Roush Fenway Racing. So I don't know. I'm thinking somebody wanted to go out to the old ballpark. (laughs) 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 And he's just Cracker Jacks. (laughs) There was another scene on the circuit item about Slim Jim getting out of the sport. Now, I got to tell you, Slim Jim... Uh, That was a major, major, major thing at the time because Slim Jim had been with Labonte Racing and had backed Bobby Labonte and David Green to Bush Series Championships with that operation. They had been with Jason Keller. And Dick Conway, uh, (laughs) Dick Conway was basically synonymous with Slim Jim as that team's PR rep, and he was one of the greatest people in that role ever to step foot in a NASCAR media center. Yes, he was. I couldn't help this week but think of Dick because I made a recent interview request for the podcast, and I emailed the PR rep. And I got a very curt reply that said, I don't work for the team. I work for the driver. Sorry about that. What? (laughs) I got that response, and then then I emailed back. I said, was there somebody with the team that I could contact about this request? And she responded and said, I don't know of anybody. Sorry about that. So this whole sorry about that. Now, what is a PR person for? I don't care for for the team or with the the driver. The goal is to get the proper exposure. Yeah. For the driver, if you're working for the driver or for the team. So if, if you get that, so what is it? Yeah. What is it, sorry about that? So my point was, if you make that contact with the team, doesn't that help the driver? So Absolutely. I don't know. Dick Conway would have moved heaven and earth to make that interview happen if the request was legitimate and appropriate and proper and everything dick would have made that interview happen as well he should again that was the year 2000 and slim jim was back with the labani racing team but terry and the team had struggled with terry behind the wheel his son justin was behind the wheel that year glenn allen brett bodine they'd all shared time in that car 
And they had wound up missing like five events going into this issue. So the team was struggling on the racetrack. And I don't know if that played anything into the fact that Slim Jim left. Obviously, the sport was getting more expensive. But (laughs) I don't know about you, Steve, but if you have ever lived off of Slim Jim's in the media center... No, I can't say as I have, but uh, best accident I've ever made, I'll tell you. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> I'd fuss and fume and fight about all the free Winston's being passed out in the media center, but yeah, I'd half kill myself with the Slim Jim. <laughs> Sandy Estep, this one's for you. I'm Kyle Petty and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, last week I posted a link to the week's episode on our Facebook page and then shared it amongst some of the different NASCAR Facebook groups out there. And our friend Will Riney, he left this comment on Facebook that just means the absolute world to me. Will is one of our supporters on Facebook. He is one of our supporters as a Patreon supporter. So Will said in his comment, he said, the Scene Vault podcast is the best thing to happen to podcasts. I have been a NASCAR fan since as long as I can remember. I was born in 1974, so I remember watching races in 1980 and 81. And I still learn something new and interesting every episode. Do yourself a favor and listen. And Steve, a comment like that, that means as much, if not more, than the Patreon support. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's nice to know that fans approve of what you do. And Rick, being a member of the media that you were with us, you know the approval of the readers is always what you're striving for. And Steve, that's kind of what I was getting at when I mentioned the fact that sometimes reporters can't see the forest for the trees because you file story, file stories, you file stories. And unless you get feedback from readers, you don't know how you're doing, don't know if you need to improve or whatever. But on this podcast and throughout this whole Corona thing, you and I are going to keep providing the best content that we possibly can. Hopefully people hear it and enjoy it and listen. I know that I enjoy putting it together. And I enjoy working with you, Rick. No. <laughs> Don't let that go to you. <laughs> you know, 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 you